Uh, this message this morning that I want to really kind of take a look at and describe uh, is really this larger, bigger picture of called Through the Storm. It's the title for today. Uh, it's this uh, ongoing, ongoing drama or narrative of the Apostle Paul uh, as Luke, who's the author of this book, is kind of taking us through this journey, showing us the life of this guy who went from being a major opponent, or I should say one who was you know, against, uh, antagonist towards the church, to being one of the greatest proponents for the church. He went around planting churches, doing the very work of God. And so that's what we've been looking at. So today is, is, is really this crazy, uh, exciting drama. It's about Paul going through a storm. And uh, like we've been saying over the past couple of weeks, it's kind of like story time with Pastor B because uh, we will be reading a very lengthy, detailed description of this. Uh, in fact, this, this actually may be the longest stretch of reading through Scripture that we, we've ever done as a church. Um, I mean, on, in one consecutive time, because there's a lot of passage that, passages that we'll be covering. And again, like I've said to you before, if for you personally... Uh, that's a little bit of a stretch for you, Maybe, mainly if uh, you are someone that is more accustomed to just reading small passages of Scripture or hearing a pastor teach on like one or two uh, words and then expounding upon it for the rest of the time, um, then, then buckle up. This might be a little bit of a, a, a different stretch for you, but my encouragement to you is to uh, be open to that stretch, to be open to uh, just listening to the story, the narrative unfold be open to what God wants to speak to you through just simply the narrative. And then uh, I will make some points as we go through, and I'll wrap it up with some kind of takeaways or thoughts about the overall storyline. So with that being said, I want to break it down. We'll look at basically three movements in the text. It breaks down really nice and easily. Uh, the first movement is we see this journey beginning, Acts uh, 27, 1 through 12. And then the second thing, the second movement, we'll take a look at the storm that Paul and his shipmates encounter. Third movement we'll see is the actual shipwreck. Yes, it involves a shipwreck. How awesome is that? Like, you're ready for a journey. That's, that's what today's about. So let me pray. We'll jump in and begin to read and let the story speak to us and ask the Holy Spirit to, uh, above me on all things, uh, address our hearts with the variety of ways in which he wants to. So, God, we come to you this morning and we just recognize our needs. Before you, you, God, describe yourself to us as a father. And God, for some of us, that may be challenging because of false ideas that we've had about what fathers are or what should be. But God, you've chosen language like that nonetheless. And so we pray that you would help us to understand who you are in light of your goodness. That we would see you as a father that truly cares for us stands with us, carries us through storms, trials, hardships. God, you do that because you love us. You do that because you've demonstrated your love to us in the most profound way through Jesus. So God, as we um, read your scripture right now, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to be able to see and observe. And God, ultimately give us hearts that are uh, desiring to obey, to be quick to want to say yes Lord, to you. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, let's enter into the very first little movement. We're entitling the journey. So verse 1, chapter 27, starts like this. You can follow along. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. I'm going to just pause real quick and just, again, for some of you that may not have been uh, up to speed with what's going on. So Paul went around planting churches. Uh, Paul was what we would call an apostle, meaning he was sent out by God, commissioned by God to go do this work of planting churches, uh, establishing small communities throughout the entire Roman Empire. Um, Paul had adversaries. The adversaries, for the most part, were of a religious order, uh, very strict Jews, just like Paul was. And they saw Paul's message that God is inviting all, no matter who they are, to the table to receive grace, to be forgiven, to be washed and cleansed, no matter who they are, whether they're religious, like Jewish people, or irreligious, like pagans who worship Zeus. 
that no matter who they are, no matter what type of background they are, whether they're religious, meaning they've been circumcised, or irreligious, meaning they haven't been chopped. So the point of the matter is Paul is saying that all are welcomed. All are invited to come to the table, no matter who you are. And, and this was deeply troubling to the religious folk because they, they heard this as uh, a cheapening of standards of God. They saw this as somehow re- a reduction of who God is and God's character. And yet what Paul is saying is that this part of the gospel, the good news message, is that Paul is saying is that God has vindicated himself because God has come into this world through Christ and he's vindicated himself not only by way of justice, meaning he did what was right, but also by way of, 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 of love, that God's love was demonstrated through this act of justice. And so therefore, whatever sin or shame or brokenness or wickedness that our sin has brought upon ourselves or soiling upon our own souls, uh, Paul is basically saying that all that has been forgiven. God has now just invited you to come to the table no matter who you are. Now, like I said, the, the adversaries of Paul wanted to put him in jail or kill him at worst. And, uh, and this is where Paul was. Now he's in prison. He's in, you know, in jail, waiting, sentencing. And uh, he's gone through a series of uh, trials, meaning like actual trials where he's, he's uh, defending himself and what he's done. And uh, there are those that want to put Paul to death. And uh, he's dealt with some of the heads of states or dignitaries, the people that are in high, powerful, not only religious positions, but also state uh, appointed or state you know, positions, people that have high uh, power. And Paul's message to them basically has always been consistent. It has always been the same. And uh, what we saw kind of lastly, uh, last week, was um, the dignitaries that were basically in charge of this whole entire scenario were basically saying, Paul, we're going to send you back to Jerusalem. And Paul knew that if he were to go back to Jerusalem to get a, a trial, uh, one, it wouldn't be fair. Two, if Paul even made it to Jerusalem, because, again, there's all these people that want to kill Paul. Paul's like, you guys are playing games. I refuse to play games with you, so I want to make my appeal to Caesar, which, as we've been saying, it's kind of like saying in the, st- in, a, in the court of America, you can say, I want to go all the way to the Supreme Court with my thing. That's basically what Paul's saying. So Paul has now been awaiting for an opportunity to hop on a ship, because that's how you would get there from the region where he's at, to go all the way to Rome. So that's where the story is at. So Paul is basically being appointed uh, this uh, centurion, which is a commander over how many? Centurion. 100. You guys are so, so smart. Good. So this is a commander over 100 people. So we know that there's at least 100 people on this ship, all right? At least it's a fairly large ship. And then you got Paul the Apostle. Paul is basically under this guy's direct jurisdiction. So following, verse 2, it says, uh, and embarking on a ship, uh, the Adraminium, he says, which was about to set sail for the ports along the coast of Asia, put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, uh, Macedonian from Thessalonica, Thessalonica. So this guy Aristarchus, we don't know a whole lot about him, uh, but we do know that Paul basically uh, was not only a pastor, a church planner, but he was also really good, uh, what you might want to call like a discipler or a coach, life coach, you know, but this is more like a spiritual life coach that Paul was. So Paul was always looking for younger people that he can uh, invest in pour his life into. And the way this worked for Paul the Apostle was Paul would invite them. Hey, you know, come hang out with me. Spend some time with me. Follow with me. And it's like, uh, what does it mean to sign up to be, uh, you know, a Padawan of the Apostle Paul? It means you follow him wherever he goes. It means that might be you jump on a ship and you follow Paul. It means that you might get run out of town by a bunch of angry mob-like people. Uh, it means that, you know, you might go without food for a lengthy period of time. Paul's whole point was that he saw the importance of investing in a younger generation of people. Uh, and this is the way the gospel grew. I mean, let's put it this way. You are here today as a Christian. If you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, welcome. Glad you're here. If you, if you, are, if you are a Christian, you're here because somebody invested in you. Someone took the time to share the gospel with you. Or uh, more importantly, maybe someone took the time to actually bring you into their life to show you the ropes, to open up scripture to you, to help you walk through life's challenges and difficulties and unpack scripture to you. So when you have tough times or when you're going through seasons of doubt or trial or questions, uh, you have someone that you can talk to. Um, they were there for you. Uh, the question that I think we always have to wrestle with is, is who, who are the people in your life right now that you are investing in? Who are the people right now in your life that you are investing in? So here's the thing what happens oftentimes in modern day American Christianity. It's, it looks more like a consumer game than it actually does scriptural New Testament 
working out of the gospel, meaning Christians have this tendency to just come to church, quote-unquote, come to church on a Sunday, do a church thing, listen to a sermon for 45 minutes, an hour, or sing a few songs and then go home, but there's not a whole lot of investment in the lives of somebody else. And what I would suggest to you is at, at, at worst, your Christianity is not complete. At, at best, it's not entering in the fullness of what God has. The, the life of a follower of Jesus, and again, there may be seasons in your life, so this is not like guilt time with Pastor B. This is, this is just thinking time with Pastor B, all right? So it's, it's I mean, of course, there's seasons. I mean, if you've got like three kids and they're all under the age of like one and you're freaking out, there's no guilt. Like you've, that's, those are your disciples right there, okay? Those are your disciples. You're, right now, you may be changing their diapers and there might not be a whole lot of training and teaching in scripture right now going on, but your investment to them is changing diapers and making sure they got food. Um, but the fact of the matter is most of us don't kind of fit that bill. Like we've got other things that are going on in our life, but we just not have taken that time to actually look for others that we can invest in. This is Paul the Apostle. He was always looking for people that he could invest in. This is who this guy Aristarchus was. Again, we don't know a whole lot about him. We just know that he was, uh, you know, a Padawan to Qui-Gon Paul. So uh, as we go on in this story, who, who likes my Star Wars references? Yes, praise God. All right. A couple of you guys are like, you can't talk about Star Wars in church. Sacred. Sacred. Um, goes on. Uh, where was I? I have no idea where my. Okay, verse three. It says, The next day we put out to Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go up to his friends and to be cared for. Uh, verse four, and then putting out to sea, uh, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. Uh, because the winds were against us, and we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and then we came to Myra and Lycia. Okay, so I'm going to show you a little bit of a map here. So this kind of gives you a little bit of a, a perspective. Can we go back to the, the big map? Just takes up the entire screen. So I'll show you this one. This is kind of like a big overview. So just to be a little bit familiar, so it helps you kind of follow along a little bit in the story. So Sidon is just above, obviously, the, the region of Caesarea or Jerusalem. So Paul was in the region of Caesarea in prison. We saw some photos of that last week. Um, they jump on a ship, they move up to the region of Sidon, and then, uh, okay, uh, fast forward to the next slide, uh, that has the, the, then you see this big red circle area, that's somewhere around the area where Paul would have been, and we are kind of following along this journey. So, uh, next slide, uh, along in the way, verse 5 to 6, I'll just read from here so you can follow along. It says, and when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra uh, and Lycia, and there a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So there's a very strong likelihood that this quote-unquote ship uh, sailing uh, of, of, or the ship of Alexandria that's sailing to Italy was a grain ship. So back in the ancient world, these were massive ships, like really, really large ships uh, that were involved in terms of like transporting and exporting, importing grain. So uh, don't, don't imagine luxury liner for the Apostle Paul, like you know, this is the Mediterranean vacation at sea for Paul. No, not quite, the, in fact, the opposite. Like, this is as worse as it can imagine. So being on a green ship, you know, this, this, this has a, a purpose to get someplace. And sometimes on these ships, you would have, you know, rats, and the conditions were nasty, and uh, it just was not, it was not the best condition. So next slide, as you kind of see Paul making his way through this journey, verse 7, it says, We sailed slowly for a number of days. And we arrived with difficulty of Snidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salome. So again, a little bit of the region that you see here. Again, most of this particular area where the red circle encompasses the land body mass, that's modern-day Turkey. So if you're kind of trying to figure out where that's at. All right, next slide. It says, coasting uh, along, it was, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, uh, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised him. This probably would have been a religious, a Jewish religious holiday. And uh, it's probably a reference to the time frame, probably mid-November, October, October November-ish uh, region of the year, which would have meant that this would have been like a month-long season that, that you, you would not necessarily want to be on the open seas. Um, and then shortly after this, there actually were laws that were like, you, you cannot take a, a craft, sea craft, out in the open seas during the time of year because it's just too dangerous. So this is kind of within the window of time where it's like, you know, at your own risk, enter these, these gnarly seas, right? So unfortunately, they took the risk, and it, it was not 
great. So Paul did not have an awesome trip. So in verse 9, so since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss and not only the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. So Paul uh, recognizes something obviously in his spirit that he just knows is not right. And I love this. And we'll actually come back to this in a moment later on towards the end. Paul actually has uh, the ability to stand up. He speaks. And remember we said out like in verse 2, I think it was somewhere on there, that the, this guy uh, who's the leader, the uh, centurion, he actually tells Paul, like they pull into this particular seaport and he's like, Paul, go hang out with your friends. Now, now remember, who is Paul and what is Paul right now? Like what, what is Paul in relation to Rome right now? He's a prisoner. Like how many prisoners do soldier, you know, leaders that are over you be like, hey, why don't you go hang out with your buddies? Or how many leaders would you have where would allow someone like Paul to stand up and be like, sirs, you know, I perceive this is not going to end well. Like Paul has a voice. And again, this plays a little bit into what we'll look at in just a moment, that there's some level of leadership that God has given Paul, and he takes advantage of these opportunities. He's not silent. He's not passive. He's not sitting in the background doing nothing. Paul is active even as a prisoner. Think about that. All right, next slide. As we move on, in verse 11, it says, But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, which is uh, the the ship's captain, uh, to the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there and on a chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So obviously in their mind, they're thinking where they're at right now, if they're going to end up spending the winter there, it's like, it'd be better to just kind of go a little bit down the coast to where there's like more stuff. It'd be kind of like if somehow you dock your ship um, I don't know, some region in Cambria or San Simeon. There's like nothing there. Or you can go up a little further up the coast and go to San Francisco. And you know you're going to spend like four months there. Where do you want to go? San Simeon, where there's nothing. Oh, there's a bunch of big elephant seals. But, or you can go a little bit further north and have San Francisco. You get everything, right? If you're a sailor, you're hungry, you get lots of food, you want, you know, whatever it is, some crazy stuff, getting yourself in trouble in, uh, you can go a little bit further. So you run the risk of like, it might be another day's journey, but it will be far better for us if we're going to be stuck here for the next like, four months. So this is exactly what's going on. Paul's like, but if you do that, you're going to put us into jeopardy. And they're like, ah, we're going to go with our gut and our you know, wayward desires. So anyways, next slide. It says, uh, verse 13, it says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose... They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of the small island called Kauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat after hoisting it up. They used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, uh, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. In other words, obviously, within this context, they realized that they were in peril. They started throwing stuff overboard, because that's what you want to do. Apparently, I mean, I'm not like a shipsman, but I've heard, uh, and I have good commentaries because I got nice Bible software. But the point of the matter is is that I've heard that it's better to lighten the ship because it becomes more buoyant and therefore it's able to remain towards the surface rather than, than sink, like you don't want to sink. Um, next slide. Verse 19, it says, On a third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us. All hope for, of our being saved was lost, uh, at, at, sorry, at last abandoned. So you kind of get the idea here that this is, this is perilous circumstance. I mean, imagine, here you are, Paul, and all these other people, and you're really in a position where you're fearing for your life. You think, we're not going to survive this. And this is exactly what Paul the Apostle was. Next slide. It goes on to say it about verse 24. It says, and he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. So Paul's... Worried that night. He's obviously in a moment of fear. 
It says again in verse 23, For this very night there stood by me uh, an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. So first of all, who is this quote-unquote angel of the Lord? The, the word angel that's typically used there is the word, uh, we get the you know, English word um, angel or also a me- messenger, the, the concept of a messenger. So the angel of the Lord could be an actual like angel, but in this case it's, it's possible that this is a reference to very, Jesus himself. And it says before, uh, Paul says, you know, before I, whom I worship. So here's Paul in this context receiving this word from this messenger. In verse 24, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all these things uh, and those who sail with you. So take heart, men. Uh, he goes on to say, For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So what we see here is that, verse 26, and then Paul says that we must run aground on some island. So Paul's whole point is that, look, follow me, follow my instructions. Now again, who's Paul? He's a, he's a soldier, or not soldier. He's, he's under the, the jurisdiction of a soldier. Paul is is a prisoner under the jurisdiction of a soldier, and yet Paul is literally rising to this level of uh, leadership, and he's literally calling the shots. And it's not just randomly that he's calling the shots. Like, he's got divine inspiration, and God is speaking to him. God is using Paul in this context to speak forth uh, words of encouragement to the rest of these people. Hey, God has stood by me. God's shown me that we're going to make it, and everybody who follows me is also going to make it. Uh, again, this is sort of a reiteration of the message that Paul had heard about earlier. Remember, Paul was going through a really tough time. He was worried. He was, without a question, filled with anxiety. And yet in a prison cell, in this moment of anxiety, God comes to him and says, Paul, don't be afraid. Because that's what God says to people that are filled with anxiety. So I want you to think about it. If that's you, if there are anxieties or worries in your life, Worries that have to do with, I might lose my job. Worries might be, I might lose my marriage. Worries that you might lose something profound or close or important to you. Uh, The the word that God wants to speak to us is, is don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't allow anxieties to overtake your heart. They cripple you. They crush you. They disallow you from being whom God has called you to be. And this is what Paul is receiving, this word from God. Now he's then going to turn it outward and begin to communicate this to the rest of the crew. Verse 27, it says, When the 14th night had come, it says, As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So imagine this, 14 nights, two weeks, um, not being able to see the stars, not being able to be aware of what's going on, not even being able to know how close you are to the land. So imagine that, two whole weeks of just being totally tossed by a storm in the middle of the sea, not even certain if you're going to make it. At that point, this is where Paul the Apostle is. It goes on to say in verse 20, so they took soundings uh, and they found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again and they found 15 fathoms and Fearing that we might run against the rocks, they let down the four anchors from the stem and they prayed for day to come. So imagine, here they are, they are doing these soundings and they're beginning to realize we're getting closer to shore, some sort of a reef. They're concerned, obviously, for their life, for their safety. And then uh, they let down these anchors and they're able to continue on. Verse, it's just kind of a waiting game right now. Verse 30 says, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, uh, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of uh, laying out anchors from the bows, from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and his soldiers. Uh, so again, this is Paul speaking to his soldier who's in control or in charge of Paul. This is Paul. Again, it shows you the level of leadership to which Paul was ascending. Verse 31, and Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. It's not like salvation saving. This is like you cannot be saved. You'll die, in other words. Like you will hit the rocks. They will die. You will lose everything. And just you have to do what I'm telling you to do is what Paul's basic words are. Verse 32, then the soldier cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So what's happening here is they had, you know, imagine like a, like a dinghy, a little boat that kind of gets towed behind. The picture seems like in the middle of the night, a handful of crewmen are like, we're out of here, we're going to die, let's jump ship, let's steal the dinghy, let's go. Somehow Paul, he's so alert, 
He's so aware of what's going on. Um, even though there's no light, right? They can't see anything. There's no moonlight to kind of light up everything. Paul's just aware of what's going on. And then Paul uh, follows the chain of command. So Paul doesn't just like scold these soldiers. Paul actually goes to the, the main soldier in charge. And he's like, look, here's what's going on. These guys are trying to steal the, the, the dinghy. They're trying to escape. If they escape, not only will they die, but so will the rest of us die. Like, like this, is, this is really severe. So something needs to be done. This is where the main soldier steps in, basically gives his command, and uh, moves on. Verse 33, and says, As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing, Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head or of any of you. This is obviously hyperbole. It's a way of just simply saying, look, you're all going to survive because God's going to protect you. Eat food. You're going to need energy for this journey from this broken down ship that's going to probably hit the rocks to shore. And, but we're all going to survive. The benefit of all of this is God's going to protect us. Then it goes on to say in verse 34, I love this. It says, therefore, I urge you to take some food, and it will give you strength, and not one hair of your head will be uh, harmed. Verse 33 says, and when we had said these things, uh, he took bread, and giving thanks to God, in the presence of all, he broke it, and he gave it to them to eat. So again, this kind of brings you back to uh, Jesus breaking bread, giving it to the disciples, and then giving it to them to eat. And so here we got Paul the Apostle literally, like, in some ways, like, emulating Jesus uh, he's very bold and giving thanks to God. I mean, Paul could have just been like handing out bread and not doing anything. Paul's using this as an opportunity to make much of Jesus, even in a crisis moment. Even when this scenario, like the, in the midst of a storm, Paul's looking for angles. How can we make much of Jesus, even in the midst of this dire situation? Kind of raises the questions a lot of times. For us, you know, what, what do we think about? I mean, I think one of the real ways to measure spiritual, maybe even emotional maturity is what's the default of our mind in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of storms? What's our default? Like, what do we default to? What do we go to? For some, because we've had this habit, we've trained ourselves, the default is to get drunk. Default, maybe smoke weed, maybe porn. We have these habits. We do these things. We have these, these, these roads that we go down. The moment life gets challenging and there's difficult things that we find ourselves facing, we run into these certain default modes. What are those default modes for you? It's different for every one of us. Every one of us has our own little path. And for some way, for some of you, it's not a path. It's a super highway because it's so well trodden. It's the, it's the default mode. Every time life's hard for you, you go right to that path. I mean, maybe at one time in your life, it was a dirt road covered by weeds. But you've been down that path so many times. It's well-paved. It has neon signs on the side. It's like it's, you've invested a lifetime into creating a road that you go to when life's hard. For Paul, it was Jesus. His go-to was Christ. When life's tough, when it stinks, when it's hard, when I'm not even concerned about my life, I'm concerned about the lives of other people. When I'm, when, I'm, when I'm aware of the fact that I may not make it another day, I'm going to run to Christ because Christ is my life. So the, the, the thing that oftentimes I would even go a step further, say the thing that you default to, it's possible to say that that is your life. That's your life. That's the thing that gives you life. That's the thing that gives you some semblance of hope or order. Or, and again, it, the, the semblance of hope and order may just be temporary. But at some point, it will expire. For Paul, it was like, Christ is my hope. Paul is running to Jesus, and he's looking for opportunities, even in the midst of great hardship, to make much of Christ. Goes on to verse 36. We're almost done here. You guys are doing good? You guys all right? Doing good? Staying awake? Pastor, story time with Pastor B is good, yeah? All right. Let's keep going. Verse 36 says, Then they all were encouraged and ate food, themselves, and we were about 276 persons on the ship. This is a large group of people. When they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now we finish with the very last little movement of the text, and I'll wrap it up with some key things to think about. 
Verse 39 says, And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, uh, but they noticed a bay with a beach, and on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast out the anchors, and they let them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail uh, to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stem was being beaten up by the serve, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. So I've got to pause real quick and make a quick statement on this. So here's what's going on. So if, if your job as a, as a soldier was to protect prisoners, to, to transport them, which is exactly what's happening, these prisoners, there's a handful of them obviously, are being transported from this region of Caesarea all the way to Rome. Some of them are like Paul, they're political prisoners. Some of them might be like really, really notorious, well-known prisoners. So, but the point is, your job was to make sure that they get to their final destination so that justice will be done. And if for some reason they escape or something else happens to them, they die or whatever, uh, their fate is, seals your fate. So if, if they escape, then, then it's, it's, you know, it's your head for their head, basic idea. So in their mind, they're thinking it would be best to, to kill these guys so that they don't escape, and we'll take a head count. Like, hey, we, we had 50 soldiers. Uh, all 50 were murdered by our own hand, and so therefore, do, don't we get an award, right? That, that mentality. Um, whereas they come back, and like, we had 50 soldiers, but, you know, 48 uh, are here, are counted for, two are gone. We have no idea what happened. They, they escaped. And uh, they, would, they would lose their life, possibly. And so the big idea was, let's just kill all the prisoners. And that way, we can basically secure our future and make sure that we got, a, we got a job. So sounds like a great idea. And they're about ready to do this. And again, just, just listen to the story, verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, he enters back in the story, wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it to the land, and then the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that they were brought safely to the land. So what we see here is that this soldier, the centurion, obviously had such high regard, high respect for Paul, that in his mind, he's like, I don't, I don't want to kill the prisoners because Paul's a prisoner. If I, have to, if I or, send the order to kill all the prisoners, that would mean that Paul's going to get killed. If I send the order to kill some of the prisoners but not Paul, then it looks like I'm playing favorites and look like I'm getting chummy with some of the prisoners, and that's not good either because, you know, prison guards should never, like, get chummy with prisoners, and that's the idea even back then. So he basically gives this order, don't kill any of them because I want to save the life of the Apostle Paul. So the story ends in that little section there. It says that Paul... Uh, along with the others, the ship literally breaks apart into just nothing but planks and boards. And it says they swam the shore. So check this out. Check this out. I, I discovered, like, there's some ancient uh, cave drawings that they discovered, like, images of what happened when this shipwreck took place on this particular beach. It's crazy. Check this out. They believe that's Paul the Apostle. It's so crazy. So check it out. The rest on planks are pieces of the ship. They came to shore. It's like, it's amazing to think that, that they were able to preserve. Some of you guys aren't laughing. But the point of the matter is, really bad joke. I get it. Some of you have already heard this before. You're like, man, when I was in fourth grade, my pastor tried to pull this off. And it wasn't funny then. It's still not funny now. Some of you are like, I'm done. I'm leaving the church right now. But the point of the matter is, here's the deal. God rescued these guys. This brings me finally to the final thing I just want to think about in terms of takeaways and summary of the rest of the chapter, and then we will finish. There's two big takeaways that really come to my mind. Number one is Paul was really an amazing leader, and there's no doubt about it. If I were to just be reading the story at face value, without question, Luke is wanting to highlight, he's the author, Luke is wanting to highlight for me, for you, as readers of this story, something really spectacular and amazing about the life of Paul. That, that Paul goes from literally being a prisoner to being an honored and respected leader on board the ship, like literally taking charge. I mean, the main point of this chapter, I, I don't think is like, you know, leadership lessons in the life of Paul. But those, without question, just reading the story, you begin to realize there are leadership lessons to be gleaned from. And there's a handful that I'll just throw out, highlight, and we'll move on to the next one and wrap it up. Number one, I think 
verse 3 tells us that Paul was trusted. There's something about the Apostle Paul's life that lended itself towards being able to be trusted, even by a quote-unquote adversary, all right? Because, again, soldiers and prisoners usually don't become chummy and good, good pals. But for whatever reason, in this context, this Roman soldier saw something about the life of Paul that was like, I can trust this guy. What about you? What about you? What about the way you live your life? Is there integrity? Are you a person of character? Are you someone that can be trusted? Are you a person of your word? I think, it's, honestly, it's, it's horribly shameful when Christians do things and it gets in the news or gets spun by the news or whatever the case is, and then it creates a context where, where the very people that are formed by the trustworthy God can't be trusted themselves. It sends a message that there's no trustworthiness, there's no character, there's no integrity. I think Paul was a man of such high integrity, high character, that Paul was able to be trusted even by a man who should never trust the, peop- the subjects that are under him. But first of all, we see that Paul was a trusted person. Secondly, I think, is this level of persistence. Paul was this guy that never stopped. And again, there's other passages that Paul writes. I think it's like in Philippians. Paul describes his history and how he's, he's endured shipwrecks and scourging and be- beatings and being driven out and being uh, turned away from and abandoned and forsaken. So imagine that. Imagine if you, as a follower of Jesus... While following Jesus, you encountered the most gnarly circumstances in your life. At some point, most of us, we we just tap out. I'm done. Enough's enough. If this is what it means to follow Jesus, forget it. And typically what that does is it demonstrates the fact that there's a very strong likelihood that our relationship to Christianity to begin with is more utilitarian Meaning, Christianity is there to serve a purpose in my heart or in my life. And as as soon as it's no longer serving that purpose, I'll I'll, I'll discard it. Or I'll step away from it for a little bit. For a guy like Paul, again, like I said, Jesus was his life. Because Jesus was his life, it meant that he had this unique relationship to resurrection. Which meant that he had this unique relationship to hope. Which meant that no matter what types of circumstances Paul went through, he would later say that we have this this momentary suffering that we go through is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will one day be revealed. So Paul had this understanding that yes, life has curveballs. Yes, life has setbacks. Yes, life is filled with disappointments. So the best thing that you and I can do is get used to it. I mean, honestly, like, orient yourself. I mean, I, look, you, you can go one direction on this and become the most horrible pessimist, like Eeyore. Woe is me. Life is horrible, and nothing good is in store for me today, and Thanksgiving's just going to be a drag. You know what I mean? You can, you can take that route, and therefore nothing, nothing will ever, like, disappoint you because you are a disappointment, period, right? You, you are already a disappointment to yourself, to everybody. And it's really no way to live. But point of the matter is, is another way is to live through life recognizing that life is filled with disappointments, but that doesn't define our life. We have a hope beyond the hopelessness. We have joy beyond despair. And this is the way that Paul lived his life, that even in the midst of shipwrecks, even in the midst of the potential of losing his very life and all these other things, that Paul was able to say, look, I'm going to keep going because I know the one to whom I'm driving towards. I know that one, or the one to whom is drawing me towards himself. I know him. He's king. He's Lord. He's good. He loves me. And that means that all whatever purposes or circumstances or trials or storms or hardships that I may be going through or encountering right now, that somehow this good king has already gone ahead of me through Storms I can't even begin to fathom come out the other end and then looks back to me and says, you're going to make it. Trust me. Trust me. Lay a hold of me. I will lay a hold of you. Trust me, you will make it to the other side. 
So we see this sense of persistence. Uh, thirdly, uh, verses 9 to 10, we see this level of wisdom. That Paul is, is operating according to a level of wisdom. Like he, he's able to observe and be able to be watchful about what's going on. And that's also the fourth thing. And again, 21 to 22, we see this level of alertness. Paul's not just sitting back idly, letting the world go by him. He's aware. He's totally present in terms of what's happening. And I say this all the time. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I think part of the problems of being present in our current cultural world is, is, is we have these. And if I can even put it this way, we don't just have these, they have us. We're addicted to these things. We don't know how to put them down. So you can be in a context of conversing with people, you don't know how to put this thing down. We're stuck. Another word to describe it is we are slaves to these things. So it actually robs us. It keeps us from actually being able to be present with the people that are directly in front of us that may be suffering or going through hardships or in the midst of crisis or there's trouble or difficulty or other types of trauma that may be going on in their lives. It keeps us from actually being present. Paul the Apostle, again, he obviously didn't have smart devices, but the point of the matter is Paul was nonetheless very present, very alert, very aware. I would imagine probably even asking questions. God, how do you want to use me in the midst of this situation? Connected to the Lord. Fifthly, I see that Paul has this level of boldness. And then he speaks. He communicates. I mean, he could have received these things and then just remained silent. Uh, I like to think of it this way, that Paul had something to say. And he wasn't operating on this realm of just having to say something. Some of us operate in this realm of, I got to say something. Which means you are always talking and there's nothing of value coming out of your mouth. Now, I, I have to admit I have that problem. I totally have that problem. Like, this is like confessions of a pastor, especially living at home. Ask my wife, my kids, and, and oftentimes I'm just spewing out worthless nothingness and just, just, yeah, it's crazy. So I'll stop right there. But the point of the matter is, is that many of us, we just feel like we have to say something. So we're filling in the blanks with just nonsense or just trivial concepts and ideas. And that's vastly different than having something to say. You understand the difference? Having something to say is like, I got a sniper's bullet, and I'm a skilled marksman, and I hit my target. Versus just shotgun, scattered approach, trying to just talk all the time, nonstop, with nothing to say, but because you're driven by this, I got to say something. No, you don't have to say something. Wait on God. Ask God. God, is there something you have for me to say? This is what Paul. Paul receives this word from God. God comes to him and says, Paul, your life as well as the lives of others are going to be spared. Trust me. Follow me. Paul, out of boldness, now has something actually to say. And it's spot on and it's hope giving. Finally, is we, I think of Paul in this context of, um, I'm going to use this word that might be difficult for some of you to even know, but I'll, I'll explain it. Uh, Paul is contemplative. And what I mean by that is Paul listens to God. That's all I mean by that, the word contemplative. It means sitting, resting, listening, being aware of the heartbeat of God, asking God, God, what do you have to speak to me? That's all that means. It just means to listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. And a lot of us, again, we, I think the tendency, our default mode is to listen to other things. I know for me, my tendency is to just be walking around listening to podcasts. I love podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie. I admit, I admit I am addicted to listening to stuff. And that's, and there are times where I feel the Holy Spirit just saying, turn it off, take your earbuds out, be present with people, be present with me and listen to my voice. And it takes a heart that is able to be cultivated to say, God, I want to hear you. To be still before God. Say, God, Speak, because I truly want to listen. I think Paul was one of these guys that was able to, even in the midst of a trial, I mean, like, look, where was Paul's quiet space on board this grain ship? Where is this, like, nice, quiet little closet? Because some of us are like, I don't have any quiet space to go. My house is filled with screaming kids or screaming spouse, and life is filled with chaos. Where can I go to hear the voice of God? Again, where, where did Paul go? Like, I don't think there was, like, any, like, prayer chapel somewhere, like, tucked in the underbelly of this, like, ship. Paul's somehow having to figure out how to cultivate hearing God's voice, even in the midst of just chaos. But 
he did it. He figured it out. And God spoke to him. Um, so we see those are some of the takeaways that I see, first of all, with regard to Paul as being this amazing leader. Secondly is I see that Jesus is with us in the storms. And I think this is what I want to finish with, is this notion, this idea that Jesus is actually with us in the storm. And this is not just simply an idea or concept that's emphasized here. We see this even with Jesus with his disciples. And they're going across the lake and the storm arises and they're freaking out. Thinking, We're going to die. Jesus, do something. And Jesus stands up and he calms the storm. And it's in some ways a reminder of the Old Testament story of, of Jonah. And you're familiar with the story of Jonah where he's this guy that's a rogue prophet. He's run away from God. God tells him to go do something. Jonah's like, nope. And Jonah goes the exact opposite direction. You, you know the story. He hops in a boat. The boat gets uh, tossed into a storm. It's a tempest. It's crazy. It looks like everyone's going to die. So there's this moment in the story of Jonah where it looks like everyone is just going to be a victim of the storm. They will all die. And they're asking these questions. Who in the world is running in disobedience to God? So it's, they're, they're, you know, these guys are all uh, uh, spiritual. You know, they, they believe in some sort of deity or entity or God or gods or whatever it is. And they're asking their gods, like, somebody's running away from God. Like, who is this? And somehow, have no idea how, it all points to Paul, or uh, sorry, to uh, whatever his name is, Jonah. They go to Jonah, and they're like, Jonah, what's going on? It seems like these things are, like, pointing back to you. And Jonah's like, oh, that's right. God told me to go do something. I said no to him. And this storm, yes, by default, is a result of my disobedience to God. And then Jonah later says, look, if you throw me overboard, if you cast me overboard, this storm will stop. So guess what they do? Exactly. And guess what happens? The storm stops. Literally, these people on board are saved because Jonah is cast overboard. That's when the big fish swallows him and so on and so forth. But the point is, is that similar language is picked up in the life of Jesus. And to the degree, here's where I would finish, that you see God's presence is with us even in the midst of storms. And the question that you might be wrestling with is, how do I know that? Because on the cross... Here's Jesus. He's literally in the midst of the most profound storm slash tempest of all ages, circling around him. We're actually told at noon, the sky goes black as this craziness, this tempest begins to arise. And this is not Jesus being cast into the storm by a bunch of people. Now remember, Jesus himself says, no one takes my life. I give it. So to the degree that you see that there is a storm that is the direct consequence of our offense, our rebellion, our turning away from God, to the degree that you see that that storm will threaten to destroy all humanity and that Jesus himself doesn't just get tossed into it, he actually willfully walks into the eye of the storm and takes upon himself the consequences of that storm, which is death, so that you and I, who are in the midst of these tempests and hardships and trials and difficulties, that we can actually find a level of freedom. To the degree that you see that Christ actually took the ultimate storm for you, what that does is it reorients you to the current, temporary, non-lethal storms that you are in right now. So let me put it this way. If you are a follower of Jesus, what might feel like to you the worst storm, worst trial, worst challenge in your life ever. If you are a follower of Jesus, that storm can never utterly, ultimately destroy you. It may feel like it can, but it can't. And how do we know that? Because the most ultimate storm that can crush and destroy us, in other words, the way Jesus would send your soul to eternal destruction, was actually tackled by himself for you. So that raises the question, then, what are the storms that you're going through right now? And as challenging, as difficult, as hard as they are, they're actually God's means somehow by which God can use, God does use those things to refine and transform. How do we know this? Because we can trust him. How do we know we can trust him? Because he's demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners and rebels and turned against God, Christ himself casts himself into the storm of destruction, total destruction, total despair, so that we can be given life. So that we can have this confidence that in the midst of our storms, 
our trials, our tribulations, our hardships, that Christ is there. So receive that. That, re, that word, receive that today from God as a gift to you that in the midst of whatever it is that you find yourself fighting, Christ is there with you. He'll help you, draw you near, help get you through this. This is a season. It may be a very troublesome, trialsome season, but Christ promises his presence there to you in the midst of that. So why don't we respond by singing, partaking of the communion as we do weekly. It's a way of reminding us of the price that Christ paid for us. Oh, the worship team, come on up. Why don't we all stand? And I want to pray over us before we jump into singing and responding to God. And my invitation to you this morning is if you're not a follower of Jesus, to consider your life, consider who you are, and put your trust and confidence in Christ. What that looks like for you may just simply be you praying and asking God, God, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me. I'd love to pray with you. If you're that person, people, love to be here, just help you pray through that, think through that. If you are a follower of Jesus and your life is kind of defined momentarily by storms, think about the nearness of God in the midst of those storms through Christ, through what he's done for you. So let's sing, let's respond, let's respond appropriately to who God is and his revelation. Let me pray over us and then we will sing. God, thank you so much for your great love. And God, in our hearts, no matter how hardened or jaded or cynical or happy or joyful or elated they may be, God, we know that this life is filled with uncertainties. And yet, God, we thank you that in you we have a level of certainty, a level of hope. So, Jesus, right now we pray that you would just turn our eyes uh, to you, to consider you. God, help our hearts to open up, to have a level of just opening to you saying, God, we, we want to know. We want to trust you. So we commit this time in your hands and help us to respond appropriately to who you are.